Hey there, fellow history people. Welcome back to another episode of Ripples from the Land. I'm Ryan Chamberlain, and along with my co-host, John Grabowski, we are your guide through the hidden currents of Cleveland's influence on the world stage. Today, we're delving into the riveting world of 19th century politics, where the winds of change blew fiercely and the stakes couldn't have been higher. We're unraveling the tales of two titans, Marcus Hanna, the kingmaker whose crowning achievement was getting William McKinley elected president in 1897. And Tom L. Johnson, the radical reformer who was once called the best mayor of the best governed city in the U.S. Their clash during the Cleveland streetcar wars of the late 19th and early 20th century is the stuff of legend. And we've got all the interesting insights. In this episode, we're channeling the energy of Cleveland's vibrant history from the Music Box Supper Club. And of course, a huge thanks to our MC for the evening, the one and only Mike Miller. So sit back, folks, as we embark on a journey through time and space. This is Ripples from the Land. Oh, and before we dive in, I want to let you know we've got a lineup of fantastic episodes coming your way. Be sure to listen to upcoming podcasts featuring Millionaire's Row and Elliot Ness's Time in Cleveland in the coming weeks. And a huge shout out to our producer, Dante LaFloria. Thanks, as always, for your incredible work behind the scenes. Now let's peel back the layers of history together, shall we? everyone. Welcome to the Music Box. All right, so politics isn't the greatest topic anymore, I guess. That's okay, uh, because I think you guys are going to really enjoy it, because it isn't modern day politics. It's a throwback to, you know, Cleveland was one of the most powerful cities, especially in the early 1900s and the late 1800s. So uh, I think you're going to hear some stories that you're kind of uh, amazed by. John, welcome back. Thank you, Mike. All right. Ryan, welcome back. Thank you, Mike. You know, let's kick it off with one of uh, Cleveland's most historic figures, Mark Hanna. Everybody's aware of the Hanna Theater. You know, how did that come to be? He became the Carl Rove of the 19th century based here out of Cleveland. So, John, I know you could probably spend the rest of the night <laughs> uh, talking about uh, Mark Hanna. So let's uh, get into it. First of all, what years are we talking about? We're talking really his, his primacy was in the late 19th, early 20th century. He would die in the early 1900s. He was a senator by that point. But he came up to Cleveland with his family. Uh, his father was a doctor. He would suffered a horse accident. He fall, fell off a horse and uh, could no longer do doctoring. So he came up to Cleveland in the 1850s, I believe, and uh, started getting into wholesale groceries. Believe it or not, wholesale groceries was a big, big project. Uh, Mark grew up here. He went to the first high school west of the Allegheny Central High School. Uh, John D. Rockefeller was one of his classmates. And uh, then uh, after that, he, he got into various business activities. He married a woman named Charlotte Rhodes, who was the daughter of this goes on forever, folks. She was the daughter of Daniel Rose, who was an iron merchant in Cleveland. This was the beginning of the iron and steel industry. He rolled into the company, and he began to make his fortune there. We can take that later, yeah. 
right, but kind of uh, move forward, he because he got wealthy, but he moved into politics. Yeah, he got wealthy, um, and he became very interested in in politics. Uh, and he was a Republican, like most Clevelanders were. Now we're going to read. Forgive me. This is a Republican Party in a different era. This is post-Civil War. This was the party that was anti-slavery. This was the party that was looking for reforming the United States. And so he got into the party. It was he, Lincoln's party. It was Lincoln's party, yep. And he began managing campaigns for a four-acre for Congress and, and, and for uh, governor of Ohio and a variety of other campaigns. And then he, he linked up with another northeastern Ohioan, a guy from Canton named William McKinley. And uh, McKinley uh, was uh, really a prime political factor, and he engineered the campaigns for William McKinley for president in 1896 and 1900, and, and that's where he made his mark. He actually took time off from the iron and uh, steel man. It became Hannah Mining, if you all know that. It's now poly one. It's still around. It does polymers. It doesn't do iron and steel. But that was the big... He took his time off, and he fully managed that campaign. And the big question there is, who ran the campaign? Was it William McKinley or was it Mark Hanna? And, and the question a lot of people... Remember Carl Rove, everybody? George Bush? Okay. You know, who created George Bush? Carl Rove, Maybe. Well, Rove wrote a book, and it's very convincing that it really wasn't, it wasn't Hannah who created McKinley. It was McKinley driving the engine, but Hannah was smart enough to create the first modern campaign. And we can get into that in a little bit, yeah. All right. I thought we were getting into it now. If you want me to keep talking, you've yeah. got another hour and a half. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to connect some dots for you, too. All right, because, all right. Uh, but wait a minute. So uh, there was a streetcar fight. The streetcar fight, and yeah. that, that and involves... Uh, one of our one of our most popular mayors, Tom L. Johnson, and Elias Sampson. Now, what Samson. year? Now, guys, you're going to okay. have to help the audience. We're going to help you. So the the streetcar fight, which is well known, which is a great entry in the Encyclopedia of Cleveland history, one of my favorite. I, I encourage you, interested in, to investigate it further. But the streetcar fight takes place around the late 1870s and early 1880s. Two powerhouse political people. Uh, Tom L. Johnson against Marcus Hanna and uh, Elias Sims. Yeah, and what you have to understand at this point is that urban transportation was not publicly owned. Pre-car. It's pre-car. So as Cleveland grew, people needed to get around, and streetcars, initially horse-drawn and then electrified, were the primary reason to do that. So if you had some cash to invest, you might want to pick up a streetcar line and get the rights to build it through the city. To get the rights, you had to go to city council. Right, there's one get catch. City <laughs> yeah, and you, you, get needed, city council you needed a vote. grant from city council. Yes. Right, and how did you get a grant from city council? You, you basically greased a few palms, okay? And so this is what Ryan is talking about, is Hannah's in this business and Tom Johnson's in this business, and they both want the same routes. Yes, so Johnson... Um, now, was this prior to him becoming mayor, Johnson becoming mayor? Yes. Oh, yeah. 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 And uh, Tom, Tom L. Johnson, I mean, he's born in Kentucky in, in the 1850s. He was born into kind of a wealthy family in Kentucky, but their family lost their money during the Civil War because they were on the Confederate side. From there, he moved out of Kentucky and really uh, became involved in streetcars, street rail system, first as an administrator. And what was a surprise to me in learning about the topic is he was an inventor first, Tom L. Johnson, and he invented the glass fare box. So the fare box where you knew that the customer was putting in the right amount of change to get the passage, okay? Instead of a fare box where you just dropped in something and you pretended it was a nickel at the time. 
Yeah, so still used today. You still see it on a lot of buses and yeah. things like that. So he, he ma- did he get a patent on that or something? Yeah, he did, and he, he sold did. it, and he made a lot of money. He, made a, he became a rich dude since he knew the rail systems. Having w- the rail business, having worked as an administrator in it, he really wisely reinvested and bought several rail lines in several different cities. Yeah, and what we're looking at is an investment strategy at that time is kind of like investing in IT now. Okay, so he was building that. And, you know, Brian is talking about inventing. Well, one of the other things he invented, when he came to Cleveland, he was wealthy enough to have a mansion on Euclid Avenue. And millionaire's in, Row. Millionaire's Row. And, and in that mansion, in the basement, he was experimenting with something we call maglev. Uh, he called it the push-me-pull-me car. Mm-hmm. Basically, he was looking at cars that floated on a magnetic field. Duh. You know, this is the 19th century. And so all these innovations. And so Johnson, he owned, before he came to Cleveland, he owned rail lines in Indianapolis, uh, St. Louis, Brooklyn, New York, and uh, Detroit. And so he eyed Cleveland uh, because of the way Cleveland was expanding by leaps and bounds during that period. And it really, I think it offers kind of pull back and stop at the perspective of how quickly it was expanding during this period, booming. You know, the city was growing from around 100,000 people in around 1880. 1920 would be over 800,000 people. And the city was the fifth largest in the United States. And there were no, automobiles were rare, so, and as people needed to go back and forth, transportation was a really big, big business. Yeah, and one of the caveats with that, too, with privately owned is they had to pay different fares on different lines. Yeah. Yep. There was, so it, was, it could be expensive going from different lines to different lines. Just um, to get across. You could, just you, to get you, across you, you could not get a transfer. So if you went from one line to another, you had to pay another nickel. You're saying, nickel, oh, my God, that's... Cheap money. Not at that time, when the average working person might be making 400 to $600 a year if they were employed full-time for the entire year. So in comes Johnson, sets his sight on a, a new line coming up for bid, and he puts his bid, has the low bid, but he is outmaneuvered by Hannah and Elias Sims and the rest of the rail owners who get him on a technicality, which is the start of the rail fight. Basically, they say, oh, well, the grant should go to people who already own rail lines in Cleveland. So they get the extension and Johnson gets left out to dry. Which brings up the question as to who gives you the franchise to run a rail line down a city street? It's not altruism, too? It's the city council. And the question is, how many palms do you grease, so to speak, in order to get the rail line? So we're, we're looking at major business here, and this, this is what sets up this incredible Hannah Johnson fight. And we'll eventually get to Hannah, right? Yeah, uh, eventually. So, <laughs> so Johnson in his, is not to be outmaneuvered. He's undaunted, and he, he buys what's known as the Pearl Road line, uh, already established line, and it's runs along West 25th, I believe, now. And, but the most important part of that story is it ends at the West Side Market. He's running from the West Side all the way down to the West Side Market. But his goal is to get it downtown. So downtown rail lines, they're uh, owned by the city, especially on Superior. And so if you can connect to the city, anyone, because they're owned by the city, can run free. Any of the private owners can run free in the city. He just has to connect his line to the city. But there's a problem with that. It's called the Superior Viaduct. 
uh, Hannah and Elias Sims, they own the rights to that. That small section, he can't complete from all the way to the west side to downtown. He tries to plead to the council to get access to the viaduct, but he's thwarted and he can't get access to the viaduct. So Johnson knows that it's going to be up in a year for renewal. So he runs the line down near the viaduct and offers a omnibus service the rest of the way, free omnibus service so his passengers can get downtown for free and so and uses that as a political weapon for the next year to really ground down the city council and Hannah and uh, the rest of the private if, if owners. You're thinking, if you're wondering what an omnibus is, it's a horse-drawn bus. Which, which gets you across. So we're not looking at internal combustion, but yeah, we're, what we're talking about is this conflict between two very powerful people in Cleveland. Yeah, and so his slogan, his political maneuver, Johnson, is one fare all the way downtown, and you can pay and get downtown. And so that puts a lot of pressure on uh, the Cleveland City Council at the time to make that decision. And so when it comes up for the renewal the next year, they put the caveat in the renewal for Sims and Hannah that they will renew their viaduct line for the grant, but they have uh, Johnson has to be allowed to run his cars over the viaduct, and that bursts the dam wide open for Johnson to complete his line from the west side downtown for one fare, and then eventually he goes on to open the east side too, so you can go through the whole city with one fare. So we're all probably wondering, what does this have to do with politics outside of greasing the palms of Cleveland City Council? Uh, it has a lot to do with politics because, as mentioned before, uh, Hannah is already sort of having his uh, fun job and right. running campaigns for candidates. In 1896, he heads on to another candidate, a man named William McKinley. And McKinley, uh, like many others, uh, Grant in part, born in Ohio, Rutherford B. Hayes, born in Ohio, Garfield, born in Ohio, is one of these Ohio presidents when Ohio was really, really strong. McKinley looks really good, and Hannah basically latches on to McKinley. He takes a leave from his day job at the iron manufacturer, which Hannah had incorporated at this point, and uh, basically begins to engineer what most people call the first modern political campaign. So from there, and but the political, it's Johnson. You really have, with this rail fight, kind of have focus on two different political philosophies within Cleveland. Johnson is the progressive, and Hannah, or so to speak, yeah. and Hannah, you know, is, is the old more laissez-faire. Yeah, well, we get into this whole thing here that uh, Johnson is kind of like Saul on the road to Damascus. You know this story? He, he falls off his mule and is converted. St. Paul. Johnson reads a book by, oh, this gets really tedious, and there's a test after this, so take notes, please, okay? <laughs> But Tom Johnson reads a book on a train. He's on a train. It's by Henry George. It's about a single tax. And only tax that needs to be paid is on the value of land. It's called single taxing. And he says, this is right. This is the best way to do things. And so he's converted into what's called a progressive, somebody who wants to change the way the government works, somebody who's not going to deal with bribes, somebody who's going to look at the welfare of everybody. And uh, so Johnson gets this. He runs for Congress, and, and then in 1901, he runs for mayor of Cleveland, and he's elected mayor of Cleveland. Now, there are two statues of Tom Johnson, one on Public Square and one at the Western Reserve Historical Society. He was, uh, he was basically brand I would call influencers of the time as the best mayor of the best governed city in the United States in the early 1900s. But at the same time, Mark Hanna is going up 
and up and up uh, because his campaign for William McKinley in 1896 is robustly successful. He beats this wild radical, William Jennings Bryan. We, we, get, we won't go into the silver gold question. That's too tedious. And he does the campaign by using media. He publishes incredible billboards and colored prints. He pushes out millions and millions of brochures that are mailed out to people all over the country to vote, vote for McKinley. And McKinley wins. He wins in a big way. And uh, it's interesting, going back to West Reserve Historical Society, we have Hannah's scrapbooks. And there are an enormous number of telegrams to him, really, really congratulating him on what he's done. And to put this thing in perspective, if you want to look at radical versus Stan Pat Republican, the radical was William Jennings Bryan. Uh, William McKinley's gold standard, basically the solid person. So McKinley is, is president in, in 1896. And, and one of the things that Hannah does during this campaign is rather than putting William McKinley on a train going all over the United States, he decides to bring people to Canton, Ohio, which is McKinley's home, by train. And McKinley sits on his port, front porch and he gives speeches. And he works at that. And this sounds arcane at this point, but this is all about communication. So he creates William McKinley as president. Now, one person has, has said basically, Mark Hanna took William McKinley and packaged him as a, a serial brand and sold him to the American public. Now, Carl Rove disagrees with that because he feels that McKinley was his own boss, so we have this whole thing going on. And, and, he, and basically, Hanna will do the same thing in 1900 when McKinley runs again. But this time, McKinley has a new vice presidential candidate. Anybody know his name? Teddy Roosevelt, right. And, and Hannah's like, no, we don't want this guy on the ballot. He's really radical. He's progressive. Anyway, it's the Roosevelt-McKinley thing. And in 1901, you may know that William McKinley is assassinated by a young man from Cleveland, Ohio, named Leon Shulgosh, who grew up in the same neighborhood I grew up in. Okay. Your uncle? Uh, um, no, no relationship. <laughs> and, and McKinley is known to say, well, he's not that damn cowboy as president of the United States when that happened. So this, this, is, this is a change that has two Cleveland connections, really strong. And all three are Northeastern Ohio. McKinley from Canton, Hannah from Cleveland, and Sholgush for not Cleveland. They change American politics. It shifts, you know, and this is not to exalt that tragedy. It's a terrible tragedy when McKinley is assassinated. Now we have other presidents, Garfield from Northeastern Ohio, also assassinated after a brief month in, in office. So this history of the late 19th, early 20th century is dominated by presidents from Ohio and the influence of people from Northeastern Ohio. All right, tell the story of the presidential bedroom on Cleveland's lid. Presidential bedroom? Um, well, the, you all know about Millionaire's Row, right? Yeah, we all know about Millionaire's Row, but we don't know much about the people who lived on either side of that, and we'll deal with that in some other session. Sylvester Everett, who made his money, he was, he was born, you know, not wealthy, but he made his money in investments, in railroads, in a variety of things, uh, accumulated in banking, he accumulated a huge amount of money. By the 1880s, he was able to build perhaps the grandest home on Euclid Avenue. It was at the uh, northeast corner of Euclid East 40th Street. It's now a parking lot. Uh, it's an amazing house and numerous rooms. One was dressed, one was in Moorish style, whatever else. He had a special bedroom. All the furniture in it was ebony, and it was called the presidential bedroom. He basically, you're looking at, I think Hayes was there, McKinley was there, Taft was there. 
other people, most of the wealthy and famous stayed in that bedroom at that house in Euclid Avenue. And that is really an example of the influence that the wealth on Euclid Avenue, which was mostly, Euclid, mostly Republican, but this bedroom, and you can find pictures of it online, it's just absolutely incredible. But it's the presidential bedroom. It was reserved for presidential visits. So the next time you remodel your house, <laughs> you know, just add a room and call it the presidential bedroom and somebody will come. On the opposite side of that and finishing, not finishing Johnson's story, but talking about Johnson, you talk about with Johnson and progressive politics, it's sort of the opposite of almost the opposite. I don't think you can quite say the opposite, but municipal ownership, and he, and he stuck in. Because he started uh, the Cleveland Public Power, correct? He advocated for it, but it was his acolyte, Newton D. Baker, who actually created what is now uh, Cleveland Public Power. Uh, you're uh, finishing up Johnson, the three-cent fare, getting it down five-cent to three-cent, and municipal ownership with it. He ran into a lot of obstacles trying to get the three-cent fare and municipal ownership, and eventually he won it uh, at the stake of his kind of mayoral administration. He put it all there, and then eventually it fell apart through basically graft and corruption. Brief glimpse, he showed that it could be done in a way that really influenced a lot of other people in a lot of other cities. And then going, you can go to into Baker. This is something that, that's really important at this time, is municipal ownership of utilities gas and electric and transportation, the keys to a growing city. And we still argue that today. The Greater Cleveland RTA is one of the, is one of the results of, of that today. And you remember Kucinich and the fight over, you know, Cleveland Public Power? It's the same thing that was going on at that point. Now, we could have a whole three-hour conversation in the propriety, but this is what Johnson was pushing. And Newton D. Baker, and I think Newton D. Baker is more important than uh, Tom L. Johnson. Uh, he comes into Cleveland. He's uh, born in West Virginia. He goes to uh, Johns Hopkins University. One, one, he's a Democrat. Okay, we're talking about Republicans. He's a Democrat. One of his professors is a guy named Woodrow Wilson. Lectures by Woodrow Wilson. He then goes to Washington Elite Law School, gets a law degree, knocks around for a while, and then comes to Cleveland. And eventually, in Tom Johnson's administration, he becomes city solicitor, the city's lawyer. And so he works with Johnson. And after Johnson's death, uh, he runs for mayor. There's a little interim with a guy named Herman Baer, and, and Newton D. Baker takes the mayorality in 1912, and he's the one who fully municipalizes the city. He becomes an inc incredibly important person. When we're talking about Cleveland politics going outside of Cleveland, that encounter with Wilson, Wilson and, John, and, and Baker probably didn't know it at the time, would result in something else. In 1912, he stumped for Woodrow Wilson as the Democratic candidate for president and Wilson won. This was against William Howard Taft and, and Theodore Roosevelt. And so Wilson, the Democrat, the first Southern Democrat to hold the presidency since before the Civil War, comes into office. He offers uh, Baker a job in the administration. Initially, he says no. But after two terms of mayor in 1916, Baker is offered the position of Secretary of War. Interesting position because the United States is not yet in the war. World War I is going on. 1917, we're in the war. So Newton D. Baker is the man who has no military experience, 
basically negotiate, really navigates the United States through World War I. He has to create a million-man army. He has to get contracts out for all the war supplies. He becomes nationally famous. Now, he's a small guy. He has no military experience. As a matter of fact, when he, he basically comes into position, he says, I don't know anything about the military, but he's a darn good administrator. The soldiers during World War I refer to him as, you ready, Nudie the Cootie. Okay, <laughs> and we can get in the whole story of cooties in World War I. But he creates a national reputation for himself. And he goes, and I could speculate that Cleveland, when the Federal Reserve Bank is created, Cleveland gets a Federal Reserve Bank. That's a big thing. And of course, still have it. Yeah, and it still is. And, and I think that is partially not only the city's growth and its industrial wealth, but the fact that Baker had these connections with Washington. And didn't he steer a lot of... Uh, you know, the military hardware manufacturing back to Cleveland. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable amount. Unbelievable amount of military manufacturing came to Cleveland because he knew the system. He knew the entrepreneurs here. And so that just... Guys, again, remember that name. This is one of the individuals that, you know, in a twist of politics, resulted in almost all the infrastructure you see in Cleveland today. Uh, it, and all the money it had, and the reason we became the fifth largest city and the wealthiest city at that time was this. And, it's, and Baker plays a huge role in that. And, and there's no statue of him anywhere. No, no. It's, he's kind of the forgotten man in a way. Uh, in several ways, though, Cleveland College, which was a branch of Western Reserve University, which started downtown. This was for working people who could go to college after, after, uh, after they got off the shift or whatever. He started that project. He basically was looking at soldiers and their education in World War I and decided that more people needed higher education, so he created that. And that goes on today. That is carried on by the Siegel Senior Scholars Program at CWRU today. So that starts there. And in 1932, uh, when the Republicans are on the rope and the Democrats are looking for a victor, uh, Baker is a credible candidate for president. But he basically says, I will run only if FDR is not nominated. That's what we're looking at, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. All right, so local boy makes good. Let's talk a little bit about Garfield. Why did Garfield deserve a monument in Lakeview Cemetery, Ryan? About his presidency against, it really strengthened the presidency, the position itself, and really changed the way we understand the presidency. Without Garfield, I think we would have, the figurehead at the time was weaker. A lot of power was, one of the figures during that time was Senator Conklin, and there's a lot written about Conklin's battles against when Garfield became elected, because Conklin was in New York, and he was the kingmaker, and everything ran through Conklin, and Garfield really, when he became elected, really kind of stepped forward and really stood up to that kind of power broking. He was was a dark horse candidate, you know, and and one of the things about New York City at that point is it had the customs house and the tariffs on things coming in were the, that was the big cheese for government funding and who got a slice of it. Garfield basically is born, poor, he's born in, you know, Moreland Hills. There's a little uh, 
recreation of his cabinet. He's the last log cabin president in uh, in our history. He goes on to become a scholar. He's well-educated. He's fluent in Greek and Latin. He ends up teaching at what is now Hiram College. He serves in the Civil War. He trains himself to become a Civil War commander. He goes on from that. He goes into Congress. And then this election in 1880, he becomes sort of the dark horse candidate yeah. and, and is elected beyond anybody's expectations. Right. And I think the country, uh, the political system is kind of caught off guard in some respects. Yeah. And, and the, the other thing that is happening is that we're looking at post-Civil War America, basically the freedom of enslaved people that occurs at that point, reconstruction afterwards, which is supposed to basically get African Americans into the system of the United States, and then the end of reconstruction with a, a deal that's done in 17, 1876. Garfield comes in four years later, 1880, and as far as we know, he is very, very open to the rights of black people. And the question is, what can he do to change the direction of the country? What, what might he be able to do? You probably know what happens to James Garfield. He's shot while going to a railroad station uh, in Washington, D.C. by a man who is certifiably crazy. He lingers in a horrible situation. They can't find the death, the, the bullets, and he dies. So the question is, what would have happened to the United States if James A. Garfield had lived and tried to against sort of the rolling, uh, I think, feeling toward let's, let's just go back and forget the war and, and forget about African Americans. Garfield was very friendly to that cause, but he, he dies and his, you know, there's a funeral here and that's why he has a monument at Lakeview Cemetery. Yeah, I think so. And that brings to, when you bring up the point of African Americans and politics, uh, my mind comes to one of my one of my favorite figures during this period is James Patterson Green, who was who's known popularly as the father of Labor Day. He was the first African American elected to political position here in Cleveland. Yeah. With the father of Labor Day, he was born in 1845 in uh, North Carolina, but his family came up here. 1857 to Cleveland, and he went to Central High School in the 1860s. One of his classmates was John D. Rockefeller. By 1870, he had graduated law school from Union Law School and went to South Carolina briefly to uh, practice law, but came back up to Cleveland. And that is when he was, uh, by the Republican administration, elected, uh, the Republican Party elected Justice of the Peace. Yeah. And that is considered, uh, by his own admission, first uh, elected African-American to politics. Yeah, yeah he is. And it's, it's interesting because one of the things the Historical Society has are the John P. Green papers. And if I can sort of veer off here, you know, how do these papers come to the Historical Society? Well, some years ago, a man bought a house in Glenville, in the Glenville neighborhood, and discovered a trunk full of papers upstairs. And this is in the late 1960s. And he brought in a, an envelope to the Historical Society and talked to the then director of the library, Kermit Pike. He said, I've got this envelope. Is this, is this stamp worth anything? And, and Pike saw it was addressed to John P. Green, and he knew what John P. Green was. And he said, well, do you have any more of those papers? Yeah, I've got a whole trunk load of them. <laughs> And the Historical Society ended up purchasing those papers. And they are a window into black Republican politics in the late 19th century. So John P. Green still speaks to us through those papers. Yeah, so the rest of the story with, uh, with Green is that he was elected to the House of Representatives in, around in the 1880s. Um, one election there was served and then 
uh, was not reelected, but then later on was elected again in 1890. And that's when he first introduced the bill to, uh, for uh, Labor Day to become a state holiday in Ohio. And so, but that was, and so four years later, it became a national holiday. And in um, Patterson's great, uh, Green's great book, Facts Stranger Than Fiction, his autobiography, which is on the web, I encourage you to read it. Um, he talks about, to his knowledge, that acknowledged that that was the first holiday of its kind. He didn't get it from anyone else. Of course, he said it himself, but <laughs> most people agree with it, but that the Congress followed suit on that because it became so successful. And Ohio was really a real leader during that time. Yeah, so it's, it's almost impossible to state how important this, this state was at that point. Yeah. Well, so in 1892, just to follow up, he became first Ohio State, African-American Ohio State senator in that. And then he went on to become very involved with politics, really campaigning for McKinley, became really involved with Hannah during that period, and uh, Rockefeller, and talks about the relationship. He had their ear, had a really good relationship, and was really responsible for you know going out there and campaigning for McKinley um, with uh, the African-American voters during that period. Well, but let's jump forward here, you know, and uh, get into some uh, modern times. <laughs> you know, you know, when I think when uh, you talk about uh, an important black politician, Louis Stokes, uh, yeah. and uh, I think it's just worth uh, talking about his history. You know, uh, ran the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, he was also a big part of the uh, Ali North Iran Contra thing. And then he actually was on the Assassinations Committee. You told me just earlier he he actually sat across some James Earl who who killed Martin Luther King. Yeah, uh, Lou and Carl Stokes are I think two of the icons of, of Cleveland history. And uh, Lou is the elder brother, and and, uh, I'm, I'm, and Carl the younger brother. And uh, their mother, Louise, was widowed when they were children. She raised them and encouraged them to go on to a career. And they both became lawyers, a uh, uh, GI Bill. But Lou then uh, goes into Congress, and he serves 30 years in the House. Uh, and he's a founding member, as, uh, as Mike said, of the Congressional Black Caucus. And I got to know Lou a little bit because he was the trustee of the Western Reserve Historical Society, and we have his papers there. And uh, he's an incredible person. Um, uh, the story I always tell, and I'll, I'll mention this here, is that I knew him in passing at the Historical Society. One day I was flying out to Washington, D.C. for something or other, and uh, Lou walked into the same waiting area and had his beat-up brown suitcase with him. And he immediately looked at me and said, Hi, John. And he knew who I was. And later, after Lou had passed, I talked to members of his family. I said, well, this, this suitcase is just remarkable. They said, well, he always carried that. He always wanted to carry that, that suitcase with him. But yeah, he, he was on the House Assassinations Committee, and, and he sat face-to-face -face with James Earl Ray, uh, the man who had killed Martin Luther King Jr. So that fact alone, he was also at Nelson Mandela's uh, inauguration in, in South Africa, and we were privileged to display his diary of that event at one point. But if we're looking at political power in Cleveland, we're looking at Lou Stokes, and yes, there are a number of 
streets that are named after Carl and Lou, but when we look at the medical building at Case West Reserve University or the VA hospital and other investments that the federal government has made in any Ohio, it's, it's Lou who did a lot of this. He was quiet, he was reserved, but he's a very, very solid person. And I think his reflection um, in, in Cleveland's development is reflection on the national. He was one of, the, I believe, 11 black people who reformed the Congressional Caucus at that point. I kind of laid the groundwork for this. Uh, in the early 1900s, Cleveland was absolutely a Republican stronghold. How did the process, what happened that now Cleveland, you know, nationally, Cuyahoga County nationally is one of the most Democratic strongholds? Well, I'm going to flip that question to you because, no, no yes, I am. I, you, you happen to have a... a, a we have a, a question a, for you. You have yes. an ancestor who really had a major impact on American politics, don't you? I do. Yeah, can yeah. you tell us but more about them, sir? <laughs> what he's talking about is my grandfather actually. Uh, who's, your grand, who's your grandfather? Ray T. Miller. Okay, uh, tell, who was Ray T. Miller? He was mayor of Cleveland in 1932 and beat the Republican machine in a single year. Now, those were two year terms, folks. So I uh, <laughs> wasn't mayor for long. Uh, but uh, prior to that, you talked about uh, the prior uh, Democratic mayor was in 1912, and before that, there wasn't one ever. <laughs> there were, you know, my grandfather then uh, became the, uh, Demo the chairman of the Democratic Party in about 1936. Now, it was without a doubt, uh, you know, just a, a shadow of an organization, hardly existed, because it, Cleveland, again, Republican, Republican, because John D. Rockefeller, and, you know, all these very powerful business leaders who were solidly Republican. So all the money uh, in politics sure. flowed to Republicans. Yep. Now, you have to, you're just to interrupt, you have to imagine that during the Civil War, Cleveland was on the right side. They got a lot of contracts, and it was very strongly Republican. It was a Republican Party, so that's the growth of it. Yeah. yeah. Taking this further, uh, it was my grandfather who changed Cleveland into a Democratic stronghold. 30 years as that head Democrat, you know, actually, you know, I was like three years old and I sat on the lap of John F. Kennedy uh, on my, uh, at my grandfather's house. He was the first, he was on par with uh, Daley, Richard Daley from Chicago in terms of national power. Uh, but how did he do it? Well, he did it in a number of ways. The Depression is one of the changing points in, in Cleveland's political history. And even though we had two Republican national conventions here in 1924 and 1936, the political picture was uh, changing, and largely because of the Roosevelt, the coalition that FDR was building among African Americans, working people, and whatever else. And that, and that pushed to the Democratic Party. And I, I have a, a difficult time explaining to students today when I teach my Civil War class, that the Democrats today are not the Democrats then, the Republicans today are not the Republicans then. So we're looking at party shifts, but it's during that period where Roosevelt is building this coalition of immigrants, uh, children of immigrants, African Americans, to support the party. And it's a desperate time in the United States, the Depression. But it was also the rise of the labor unions. Absolutely. I've got all kinds of papers <laughs> on his connection to the labor unions and their growth. So it was the, uh, basically, the power started shifting in Cleveland to the working class. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, you know, the unions were a uh, big part of that. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of on, on the opposite side. There's one other person I want to mention. You know, Francis Bolton was born into wealth. Payne, Bingham, Bolton families go way back. Uh, one of her ancestors, Henry Payne, was on the commission that decided the contested 1876 election, and, and she was born into wealth and privilege, but she ended up becoming one of the most effective Congress people in the United States. And one of the first women. One of the first women. She was the seventh woman in Congress. And it was 1939, and her husband, Chester Bolton, who had been elected to Congress, had passed away, so she took over her seat, his seat. And then in 1940, in an election, was elected in her own right. And she served there. Now, Lou Stokes served for 30 years. She served for 29 years. And, and her passion, as you might know, was women and nursing. In 1920, she gave $500,000 to Western Reserve University to start a school of nursing, which is now named after her. Absolutely. And then during the Second World War, she started a nursing cadet school. And she insisted that the nursing cadet school would be an integrated school, black and white nurses together. So she created an incredible groundswell. And then after the war, 1947, she began to be interested in Africa. And she took a 20,000-mile tour through Africa to see what the situation was. And she said, this is a new emerging giant. Colonialism is going to die. We need to work with Africa as a new entity in terms of the politics and the economy of the world. And so she was really, really quite forward-thinking. The interesting thing about Frances is that she was a great yoga expert. And she used to stand on her head in her office, okay. Her papers, too, are at the Western Reserve Historical Society. And, and the desk that is in my office at the Historical Society is the desk that she used in her Cleveland office. Oh, that's very cool. And I'd like to add, you know, the pain fund, which, which she helped facilitate, really affected how we view filmmaking in America. It was the groundwork. It was one of the first media studies of its kind to see how fiction, film affect young women. And it was the basis, the Hayes Code used that as their data. Historically, looking back on it now, the data was is a little dubious, but it was still the first attempt to do a media study on how these types of media really affected people. So it really got people thinking, for better or for worse, with the hay and was the foundations for that drove the if you don't know the Hayes Code it was really kind of the censor really cleaned up the filmmaking at that time. Yeah, it, the Hayes Code basically shut out almost anything that would be looked at as quasi-obscene. And so we're well past that now, okay? Because <laughs> um, it's all obscene. It, yeah, Anyways. basically. And so, and so when Clark Gable said, I don't give a damn, that was kind of a breaking of the Hayes Code during that film, yeah. But thank Thanks, you very everyone. much thank for, you very for much. coming okay. tonight. Uh, appreciate your support. Thanks for playing politics on a wonderful evening, okay? Thank you for joining us on this episode of Ripples from the Land. If you're intrigued and want to dive deeper into the stories we've shared today, don't hesitate to visit the Encyclopedia of Cleveland History at case.edu slash ECH. You can also stay connected with us by following the Encyclopedia on Facebook and Instagram. Remember, Ripples from the Land is available on most podcast platforms. If you've enjoyed our show, please show your support by liking, subscribing, and leaving a review. Your feedback helps us improve and grow. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes where we explore fascinating topics like Millionaire's Row, showcasing the opulence of some of the world's wealthiest individuals, and Elliot Ness's time in Cleveland, delving into the legendary figure's tenure as safety director and mayoral candidate. 
big thank you to my co-host, John Grabowski, and our producer, Dante LaFloria, for their invaluable contributions. And of course, thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Until next time, take care and keep exploring the ripples of history.